Welcome to History of the World Part 2, a podcast dedicated to teaching world history. Hey there, welcome back to History of the World Part 2. And this week, we're going to be finishing up the, the last topic in this global age of exploration that we've been talking about, where the world of, of the old world of Europe, which is where we've been talking about so far in this class, begins to branch out <clears throat> and starts to make connections with various places all over the world. Uh, we've talked about how um, Hernan Cortes and the Spanish met Moctezuma in the Aztec Empire and what happened when those cultures clashed. We've talked about uh, Francisco Pizarro, also of Spain, and what happened when he met the Incan leader, Atahualpa, and what happened when those two cultures clashed. And we've also just last week, discussed the Middle Passage, um, the beginning of the slave trade during this time. We discussed how it was all based upon gold, God, and glory, but really, as the slave trade shows us, it comes down more than anything really to gold. And so what we have this week in class, the last topic having to do with the global age of exploration, we're going to talk about a little bit of American history, really, although not from the perspective of English-speaking Americans, so kind of still world history, an event called the Portola Expedition. And we're going to discuss this, this event, because a lot of teachers leave it out, but we're going to discuss this event for one reason in particular, because one, it kind of covers all the pieces of America, right? It talks, this is about North American discovery. We've talked about Mesoamerican discovery with the Aztecs, and we've also talked about South American discovery with the Incans. Um, and this one, like I said, is about the North American and, and explorations in that area. But it also starts to get us into slightly more modern times. This is an event that happens in the 1700s, which is going to start connecting us to the next unit we're going to get to in a couple of weeks about the global age uh, of enlightenment and the enlightenment period. Um, and so I want to take this first part of the podcast today to just go over the details about this event, give you some background. Um, to help you follow along with us. So to start us out, what we're going to be looking at, this event, happens in the 1700s, and it happens specifically in California. Uh, what happens is the Spanish, um, who were still controlling this part of America, North America, um, send um, explorers up into this region to, um, to find out about the tribes that live there. And the question we're going to be answering this week, I should mention as we get started here, is what was the purpose of this Portola expedition? What was the real reason the Spanish were sending explorers up into North America? And so a little bit of background before we get started here. Um, some background about California and specifically Native Americans in that area. Um, Native Americans have lived in the geographic area of California for thousands of years. Prior to the first Europeans arriving in what is today California, 
we know that there were approximately thereabouts 300,000 Native Americans, constituting about 500 different groups or sub-tribes. Um, and we know that there were also about 100 different languages spoken by tribes that lived in California. Uh, some names, and there's too, too many to read, and I, I apologize if I get some of these names wrong, um, but some of the languages that we know, there's Penutian, Hokan, Utu, Aztecan, which is a version of Azteca, right? Uh, Atapascan, Yukian, Alanguiquan. Those are all different versions and root languages of these Native American groups, right? This vast diversity of different groups of people were living in California. But in about the 1500s is when exploration really kicks off. We've talked about the Aztecs. We've talked about the Incans. Um, and we know that there were people, there were explorers coming up into California as early as the 1500s, um, with one of the first ones being uh, Spanish conquistador Juan Cabrillo sailed up the California coast in 1542, and he said that California was going to be Spanish land, right? By 1542, that area was already conquered by the Spanish, technically. <clears throat> but we also know that there were other people in and around this area exploring. Um, we know that uh, the English had come there. Sir Francis Drake stopped in North California during his expedition around North and South America, and he claimed the area for England. We also know Rus Russia also had a presence in, in Alta California, uh, and Russian fur traders were traveling the Pacific coast. Russian American fur companies had established Fort Moss in North Carolina, or sorry, North California in 1812. And so we know that this area had been known. We know that these natives had seen other people before, but this is kind of a special event that starts to happen by the 1700s. So the Portola expedition comes along in 1762. So we're getting really close to kind of modern times, right? America is not far away from being founded, but America is going to be mostly on the East Coast. This is obviously on the West Coast. So in 1762, King Carlos III of Spain appointed Gaspar de, de Portola governor of California. And in 1769, he sent Portola to explore California and set up a system of missions. If you don't know, a mission is like a religious outpost that gets established in an area to help expand the presence of the people in that area. So the Spanish are going to be setting up these kind of like religious forts almost to try to convert the Native Americans to Christianity, but also to kind of gain that territory, right? And these expeditions aren't just going to be holy men. There's going to be soldiers. There's going to be engineers. There's going to be map makers. Um, there's going to be obviously uh, uh, priests and things, but it's a fort with kind of a religious aspect to it, right? In order to set up your stronghold in an area. Now, this specific expedition, the Portola expedition from these missions, sets out from Baja, kind of Southern California in 1769 and begins to head north, right? California kind of stretches the whole West Coast almost. Um, the expedition established its first mission in San Diego and then headed further north in search of Monterey Bay, which Cabrillo had described in his voyage up the coast. So he was following back on old sources from 200 years ago, saying this guy who wrote this book 200 years ago says there's this coast here, we should try to go find it. The expedition traveled as far north as present-day San Francisco before returning to San Diego. In the decades following the expedition, the Spanish built 21 missions across California, from San Diego to just north of San Francisco. 
During the expedition, the Spanish came into contact with several groups of Native Americans. Most of the Native Americans they encountered had never previously had contact with Europeans. So for some of these natives, this was their first interaction with people of light skin, right? With white, white Europeans. Um, and so what we're going to be doing with this information here is kind of getting a chance to see one more time what it was like when these cultures clashed into the, to each other, right? As the Spanish um, begin to establish these missions, begin to colonize this area, what do the natives... What are their reactions? And then kind of what are the, the Spanish reactions as well? So far, when we've talked about the global age of exploration, we've been talking about these clashes, right? The Aztecs and, and Hernan Cortez, Atahualpa and Pizarro, right? We've talked about how they ran into each other, they started killing. We haven't really talked about how these areas begin to get colonized, how Mexico goes from Aztec to Spanish, right? How, how Peru, the Incans, goes from the Incan Empire to Spanish and Peru, right? And so what we're going to see with this one is that act of colonization too, how a society comes in there and begins to settle in an area. Now, what we have for class, the sources we're going to look through to help us gain an understanding for... Um, what was the purpose of this expedition is we actually have three we're going to look at. Um, the first one that we're going to look at is actually a picture. Um, and it's a picture made in 1816, uh, a, a little um, relief of some kind, made in 1816 by this guy named Louis Chorus called, uh, the picture is just called Boat in the Port of San Francisco. Obviously, it's not a photo, it's a drawing, but uh, called Boat in the Port of San Francisco. And it shows, and obviously we'll see this in class, but you can also look it up early if you'd like. It shows um, two Native American men and then what I presume to be a woman in the middle in this boat. Uh, off in the background, you see some big sweeping hills, maybe some mountains off there. They're in the ocean or maybe some kind of lake. And it looks like they might be fishing with spears. Um, some background on this guy. Chorus was a German-Ukrainian artist who traveled to Northern California as part of a Russian ex expedition. Uh, and we think that based upon where he was, the people in this image were most likely coastal Miwok or Alolan Indians, um, being the type of Indians that he, he found. And what we're going to be doing with those pictures is like we do every week, right? We're going to go through the sourcing. Who made this? We're going to read it carefully, right? Looking at a picture is interesting. We're going to source the picture. And then we're going to read it to try to see what's it showing us. Um, and then we're going to see how much can we trust a picture like this for what life was like for the Native Americans. So that's the first source. But the second source is, the second source is a little bit more traditional. It's going to be a reading. Um, it's called Document A. It's by a guy named Miguel Costanzo. Uh, some background. Miguel Costanzo was a Spanish map maker and engineer. He was part of the Portola expedition, and he kept a diary of his travels, um, published in 1770. So he, he was writing down the things he was seeing, and people extremely interested in what's happening as this world is being explored um, are reading and picking up his diary, right? And uh, this particular diary entry, um, we know he wrote August 14, 1769, close to present-day Ventura, California, which is just a little bit north of Los Angeles. And this is what he has to say about his expedition. He says, we broke camp in the morning and headed west-southwest. We reached the coast and came in sight of a real town. 
It had the most people and was the best arranged of all we had seen up to that time. We counted as many as 30 houses, spherical in form, well built and thatched with grass. We judged from the large number of people that came to meet us that there were about 400 people in the town. These natives are well built and of good disposition, very agile and alert, diligent and skillful. Their canoes were made of good pine boards, which are joined together and caulked well. The canoes have a good shape and will hold eight to ten men. The natives use the canoes with skill. Three or four men go out to sea in them to fish. They use double-bladed paddles and row with great agility and swiftness. All their work is neat and well done. They gave us some baskets or trays made of reeds with different designs and wooden plates and bowls of different forms and sizes in exchange for strings of glass beads. They gave us a large quantity of fish, particularly the kind known as Benito, which tastes as good as fish caught in Spain. So he gives you kind of a real world experience there of what he saw, what he, what he experienced when he came into this native village, right? And so what we're going to do in class, again, with a series of questions, is we're going to source it. We're going to see how it compares to the first source. We're also going to read it closely to try to figure out what's this guy really saying about why the Portola expedition was really happening. Uh, and then finally, we have one last source that we will look at, and I'll go over with you guys here, um, by a missionary, by a friar, who was one of these Spanish missionaries who was traveling up the coast. His name was Juan Crespi. And it says, Juan Crespi was a Spanish priest and missionary. He served as the chief diary writer of the Portola expedition and focused on locating sites to build missions. So he's the guy who's supposed to write down all the things that are happening. And he's also supposed to be keeping an eye out for good areas to build, um, to build missions, to build these, these Catholic missions, these Spanish missions. Um, I should also just kind of make the connection. People like this Juan Crespi guy, these diary entry writers, were the ones who were writing down what would happen between Atahualpa and Pizarro, were the ones that were writing down what would happen between um, Cortez and Moctezuma. So he's another one of these, these guys who has this position. And this is what he has to say as he was traveling in relation specifically to what the purpose of the Portola expedition was. He says this, After traveling seven hours, we arrived at the camping place, which is in a small valley with a good village of heathen. They received us with much friendliness. They are fair, well-informed, and some of them bearded. They have their village near the beach, about half a league from our camping place. But they also have their little houses in this valley and live in them. The valley has a great deal of land, much of it good. In the middle of it, there is an arroyo uh, with plenty of water, which goes to the beach. <clears throat> I believe the place is a good site for a mission, so the conversion of this village may proceed. The heathen gave us many tamales made of black siege, seeds, which are not so bad, so, so the soldiers say, for making a tole. Um, so he starts to change it up a little bit. And if you notice there, he talks about, yeah, they're good. They're doing all right. But he also begins to mention how, well, maybe we can take some of this land and do this with that. We can convert them. The conversion may proceed, right? Um, so it starts to kind of open up the gates for what were the Spanish really doing in this expedition and why were they really there in the first place? And so that'll wrap us up with the first section of what we're going to get into today. Stay tuned right after the break. Uh, we'll go over this more in class, but stay tuned right after the break, and we'll get into some details about some historical content 
that's related to this event. Welcome back to the history section of the podcast, where we're going to be talking about some stuff that we're not going to necessarily get into in this class, um, but are tangentially related and kind of connect, give you a wider view of the history that we're learning about. And this week, as we kind of are getting closer to more modern history, really the year 1700 is when I say we kind of get into the modern history stuff, and the Portola expedition is definitely in the year 1700, um, but... I want to kind of go back just a little bit since we're on this theme of specifically North American Native Americans um, talking about some of the other clashes that they've had with other various groups, right? The global age of exploration, like we've said, is this time period where really the old world clashes into the new world, where the world that has been known and written about for a long time has discovered this new world that's, that's fresh and, and, and fertile and hasn't been touched. Um, and what happens when they run into them? Again, Aztecs, Incans, right? Using slaves as, la as labor in this new areas. And so we're going to talk about another event that is really more of an American history topic, but I think is related. We're going to switch from the West Coast talking about the Portola expedition um, to the East Coast now with a very specific war called King Philip's War, which was essentially a war that breaks out between indigenous Native Americans who were living in North America on the East Coast, closer to New England and those areas, um, as the English began to really settle their lands, right? Um, and this is a war that breaks out between English colonists Native Americans in the year 1765, or sorry, dyslexia, 1675. <laughs> so a little bit before the Portola expedition. So a little bit about the background of the area before we get into some of the details here. Um, <clears throat> it's that when the pilgrims arrived in America in the 1620s, there was already people here, obviously, right? When we talk about discovery, when we talk about colonization, we know that there are already people living in these areas. So we discussed a while back about what does it mean to really discover something if someone is already there. Um, so the people that we know lived there, and I'm going to get some of these names butchered, I'm sure, um, but we had uh, a Native American peoples called the Algonquin living in this region, uh, and one of these Algonquin nations was the Wampanoag. Um, a lot of times when we talk about nations in Native American society, it's usually groups or areas of various tribes who all speak a similar language, right? They didn't have nations. They didn't have countries like we would consider a country today. It was more loose than that. But all these people in this area had similar beliefs, spoke similar languages, maybe we're related in various ways, and so we call them a nation. So one of the tribes was the Wampanoag of the Algonquin Nation. Um, their society was built around family relations, 
Um, both men and women could serve as their leader. They called them a sachem, uh, who governed their nation along with counselors, elders, and lower sachems, right? Um, and in the early 17th century, the Wampanoag lived in present-day Rhode Island in southeastern Massachusetts, right there on the coast. One of these first groups that's going to run into these English explorers as they start to come over and settle. Uh, and during this time, obviously, they come into contact with the European merchants. So the settlers, or the pilgrims, rather, arrived in 1620. And this is a little bit of a connection to Thanksgiving here, right? Thanksgiving was just last week. If you're listening to this, the week we're learning it. Um, the pilgrims arrived in 1620, and the Wampanoag taught the pilgrims how to fish and grow crops, right? This is the story of the Thanksgiving feast, right? Whether or not, you know, it really happened. There's all kinds of problems with the, with the, the argument, right? But these are the people that helped the pilgrims survive their first earliest winters. Um, but there's a lot of problems that don't get discussed in this. One of the things is these North American tribes, just like the Aztecs, were not um, ready for the diseases that, that the the pilgrims brought with them. They were kind of unexposed to a lot of these diseases. And anytime you have someone who's unexposed to a disease get exposed to it for the first time, it's going to be bad. Look at COVID. COVID's a brand new disease. And anytime someone gets exposed to it, it's going to be bad. Um, so we know that there were epidemics brought by these Europeans. We know that they just took land. Uh, and we know that there was a lot of fighting that's going to end up happening between many Native Americans and New Englanders. Um, from 1600 to 1675, kind of about the beginning of this time period, the region's Native American population decreased from 140,000 to 10,000. Think about that. In 75 years, they lost 14% or so of their population. No, I'm sorry. Flip that around. They went from 140,000 to 10,000, meaning that um, they lost more than a tenth uh, of their population survived, right? 90% of their population was destroyed. That's crazy. That's why they call this a lot of times a genocide, whether or not it was intentional or not. A good many, many, many Native Americans were killed. But during the same time period, the English population is going to grow to 50,000. Right? They're going to become more and more and more prosperous as Native Americans are killed off um, kind of very quickly. And so... A war between English colonists and the Pequot in 1636 and 1637, New England was, a, was free of major armed conflicts for about 40 years, right? After the initial fighting, they're free of conflict for a while. But in 1645, New England Puritans launch a campaign to convert Native Americans to Christianity. And about 2,000 Native Americans lived in what's called praying towns, where missionaries pressured them to give up their cultures and become Christians. Again, sounds very similar to the Portola expedition about 100 years after all this. Um, now, this is where kind of our story takes off. Uh, that's kind of some background. Um, so there's a, a tribe leader from the Wampanoag Nation uh, named Medicomet, whom the English is called King Philip. That's where the name King Philip comes from. He was the sachem of the Pokan. Poganoket, um, which was a tribe of the Wampanoag Nation. And in 1675, after seeing what was happening to his people by the New Englanders, by the people who were settling, by the English people who were settling here, he forges a military alliance with about two-thirds of the region's Native Americans. And so, in June of 1977, 1970, sorry, 1675, I cannot read numbers today. 
Metacomet led an attack on an English settlement in Swansea, Massachusetts. Over the next year, Native Americans attacked more than half of New England's towns and destroyed 12 out of 90, killing 5% of New England's colonists. Native American casualties in New England were higher. Perhaps 40% were killed by colonists or forced to flee as, res as a result of colonial attacks. Um, the English called this conflict King Philip's War. In August 1676, colonial forces killed Metacomet, then mutilated his body and publicly displayed it. Shortly after, Native American defenses collapsed. Colonists sold many surviving Native American men into slavery in the West Indies, so Indians being sold as slaves, and enslaved many women and children in New England. Colonists sent a smaller number of Native Americans to praying towns. So, again, another big culture class, one that doesn't get talked about in the same regard as the Incans and the Aztecs, um, but still happening. Uh, and so what we're going to look at here now is a couple of sources that are going to help us try to figure out what caused this to happen, what led this event to become so violent. And to do this, we have three different sources here. Um, the first one is from a Rhode Island official. Um, the second one is, is an official of the English government. And uh, a third one comes from a Methodist minister and a Pequot, who was a uh, Native American became a, a Christian uh, who gives a speech as he's trying to fight for the rights of Native Americans. So to begin, let's look at John Easton's account of what happened. John Easton, he was a Rhode Island official. Uh, he met Metacoma in, on June 16, 1675 to try to prevent war between the colonists and the Native Americans. However, the negotiation, negotiations fail and fighting breaks out within days of this happening. And so this is what he has to say. Um, as he's writing down what happened. It says, in, in the winter in the year of 1674, an Indian was found dead in a pond. The dead Indian was called Sassamon. He was a Christian who could read and write. It was said that he was a bad man and that he tried to cheat King Philip, Metacomet. One Indian informed the English colonists that three other Indians had murdered Sassamon, knowing that it would please the English. The three Indians were hung by colonists. It was reported that before his death, Sassamon had informed the colonists of the Indian plot to destroy the English for their wickedness. So the English were afraid, and Philip was afraid, and both increased their arms. About a week before war broke, we suspected it would. To try to prevent it, we sent a man to Philip to ask if he would meet with us. King Philip agreed to come to us. He and his men said they had done no wrong, but that the English wronged them. He said we knew the English said the Indians wronged them, but our desire was to avoid fighting. The Indians acknowledged that fighting was the worst way. They said when the English first came, their king's father was a great man, and the English were as a little child. He prevented other Indians from wronging the English and gave them corn and showed them how to plant and let them have a hundred times more land than now the king had for his own people. They believed their king's brother when he was king was poisoned by the colonists. Another grievance was, if 20 of their honest Indians testified that an Englishman had done them wrong, it was as nothing. And if but one of their worst Indians testified that any Indian or their king, when it pleased the English, it was sufficient. Another grievance was, when their king sold land, the English would say he owed more, more than they had agreed to. So, <clears throat> this guy, if you're having a hard time following his writing style, because he is writing in the 1600s, is essentially saying that... There was a lot of tensions building up. They found this dead man, and the Native Americans uh, 
killed him for what he was trying to do, and then the English killed their the guys who punished him. <clears throat> it gets to be a mess. And more specifically, they, they talk to King Philip about all these problems, and King Philip says there's a major power differential. He essentially says it's not fair. The way you guys have been treating the Native Americans, speaking to the English, the way you guys have been treating us has been not fair. We helped you survive as pilgrims, going back to the Thanksgiving story. We taught you how to farm as pilgrims. But now, today, you drive, of, drive us off of our land. You kill our people. Um, you try to take more of our stuff than we have to give, right? They start to say that there's a major power problem here. We tried to help you, and you won't help us back. So that's according to John Easton. And it starts to lay the foundation for why the war broke out. Maybe the Native Americans were, were, were sick of having these problems, right? Let's look at another source. Document B comes from a guy named Edward Randolph, who was an um, English um, government official who was sent here by England to kind of sort things out. His name's Edward Randolph. He says this, uh, There are various opinions of the causes of the present Indian War. Some blame it to an inappropriate zeal in the magistrates of Boston to Christianize the Indians, enforcing on them the strict observation of colonial laws, which, to a people so rude, has proven intolerable, and that while the magistrates for their profit severely enforce the laws against the Indians, the colonists on the other side, for lucker and gain, entice and provoke the Indians to break them. Some believe there have been Catholic priests who have made it their business to turn the Indians against the English. There's a little bit of Protestantism versus uh, Catholicism there, right? Others blame the cause on some injuries against the Sachem Philip, for he possessed a tract of land called Mount Hope. Some English wanted it, so they complained of injuries done by Philip and his Indians to their stock and cattle, whereupon Philip was often called before the magistrate sometimes in prison, and never released without parting with a considerable part of his land. But the government of Massachusetts declares there are sins for which God has allowed the heathen to rise against the colonists, for breaking the fifth command, for men wearing long hair and wigs made of women's hair, for, cut, for women cutting, curling, and laying out their hair, and disguising themselves by following strange fashions, for the people not attending their meetings, and others leaving before the blessing is pronounced, for allowing the Quakers to live among them, the loss to the English in the several colonies is reckoned to amount to 150,000 pounds, there having been about 1,200 houses burned, 8,000 head of cattle killed, and many thousand bushels of wheat and other grain burned, and upward of 3,000 Indian men, women, and children destroyed, who, if well managed, would have been very serviceable to the English. So, he gets into details here, trying to be as third party as possible, but no one is truly neutral about this event, about what's happening here, and about why it's happening, right? Back to our key question there. And he essentially says, yeah, the New Englanders are not treating them very fairly. Um, but by the same token, he also calls the Native Americans heathens who rise against colonists. He says they're breaking our commandments. And then at the very end, he kind of tallies some of the losses. And he says, yeah, we've, um, the, the New Englanders have lost a lot, of their, their, a lot of their land. They've had some houses burned. But they've killed about 3,000 men, women, and children. So, you know, there's that too. 
right? So again, he tries to be neutral. He kind of blames it on both sides, although no one is ever truly neutral. And then lastly, like I said, we have one more um, source I want to look at, a guy named William Apis. Um, he's a Methodist minister in Apequa. Um, he was well-known in Massachusetts as a speaker, author, and activist. He worked to gain rights for Native Americans. And this comes from one of his speeches. Uh, this is delivered in 1836, 50, 60 years after all this happens. And he says all this. Um, in 1673, the court ruled in favor of Talman, the young pilgrim. Philip had to give Talman a large tract of land at Sapomet. This angered the chief and his people. In the year 1668, Philip had made a complaint against a pilgrim who had wronged one of his men of a gun and some swine. There is no record that Philip got any justice. The pilgrim sent an Indian, a trader, to preach to Philip and to his men in order to convert him and his people to Christianity. The preacher's name was Sassamon. Who could have been more insulting? Sorry, what could have been more insulting than to send a man to them who was a traitor? It was the laws of the Indians that such a man must die. In March 1674, one of Philip's men killed him and placed him beneath the ice in a pond near Plymouth, doubtless by the order of Philip. Tobias was apprehended and tried. Tobias was one of Philip's counselors. In June, three Indians instead of one were arraigned. Only Tobias was previously suspected. Now, two other were arraigned, tried, and condemned and executed on June the 8th, 1675, by hanging and shooting. It does not appear that any more does not appear that any more than Tobias was guilty. The other two persisted in their innocence until the end. This so exacerbated King Philip that from that day he planned his revenge on the pilgrims. He believed the executions were a violation of treaties. Until the execution of those three Indians, supposed to be the murderers of Sassamon, no hostility was committed by Philip or his warriors. After the Indians were executed, he could no longer restrain his young men, who upon the 24th of June provoked the people of Swansea by killing their cattle and causing other injuries, which was a signal to commence the war. So we have one final account taken from the perspective of a Native American. And you start to see that maybe um, it was all about that guy who they'd originally talked about, that Sassamon guy. But underneath all that, what you really see is that there's a history of violation against violation against violation against these Native Americans who they say help the pilgrims and the people who settled in New England survived these harsh winters via the Thanksgiving story, right? Via let's feast, let's teach you how to make corn and things like that. And uh, it's another account, like I said, um, of what happens when the old world runs into the new world, but from the perspective of a colony, what happens when they colonize and there's a slow burn rather than an explosion like you tend to get with the Incans and even the Aztecs in a way. So that wraps up our discussion of the global age of exploration. Um, lots of conflicts are arising because the old world is running into the new world and all kinds of problems are going to come. And that's just the beginning because very soon we're going to get into the age of enlightenment and see what starts to happen in these countries that are exploring um, as all this madness is happening around them with the world. Thanks for listening. and We'll see you next week.